You want to know why you're all fucked up? What is nothing? Yeah, that's deep. What in the fuck are we doing here? That's deep, bro. to that's deep bro oh that was abrupt and terrible sorry uh i'm your host christina p thank you for downloading this episode of that's deep bro uh let's get to some business firstly thank you everybody in san francisco that came out to see me perform at Cobb's uh this last sunday it was amazing it was so much fun i really appreciate it and let's keep the comedy train moving um may 4th is sold out in huntington beach may 5th however has been added to the rec room uh tickets are still available for that that is this saturday so snap them up and then may 9th oxnard at levity live uh and then november 24th house of blues in san diego california those tickets are now on sale to the general public december 8th new york city gramercy theater a theater (laughs) tickets are available at christina p online and what else I don't know. I, I, you know, that's it. Um, okay. Okay. So I normally start the show, um, with music, but I opened up my computer and this was up and I felt like it was very, uh, serendipitous. It is the fabulous Bill Hicks. This is probably one of my favorite bits of his that, uh, he ever did. He's dead. He's dead. He died at like 34 of cancer, uh, which is crazy. But spent the last, you know, his remaining time on earth touring of all things. (laughs) But he's a legend. I love him. And I hope you enjoy Bill Hicks and this episode. Well, I tell you something. I learned something very important watching that Clarence Thomas hearing. Do you know what I learned? I don't stand a fucking chance. (laughs) Don't even call the committee to order. It'd be a real short hearing. Well, Mr. Hicks, are you familiar at all with a video series called Clam Lappers Volumes 1 through 90? All of them? I don't recall. Uh-huh. Well, Mr. Hicks, are you familiar at all with a man named Manuel who works at the Show World Adult Video Parlor? Manny, Mr. Hicks, they subpoena me. They subpoena me. <laughs> but I tell you, after the Pee Wee Herman thing and then after the Clarence Thomas hearings, pornography's gotten a really bad name in our country. And I'd like to state for the record right now, I love pornography. <laughs> love it. I have tapes that are pure fucking art. I'm telling you. People fucking sucking every imaginable position. The finest looking women fucking sucking. I love it. For the record. Mr. Hicks, thank you for your testimony. I don't know if we have a place for you right now on the Supreme Court. 
But boy, you ever thought about becoming a senator? Come here, boy. Bring some of them tapes over here. Look at that. Whoa. Bring them over to Teddy's house. Yeah, look at that there. Woo, she go to that like a duck to water. Look at that there. There you go. Bill Hicks, guys, if you don't know who this person is, uh, I mean, and you love stand-up comedy as I do, go ahead and check him out. He's probably, arguably, I think one of the greats. I know a lot of us comics look up to Bill Hicks. He was just the OG gangster. of. Uh, he's, in, he's intelligent. He's thought-provoking. Uh, he hated the apathy of a, a, a lazy American anti-intellectualism. Um, and he was a really skilled joke writer. If you see, I mean, you heard that little bit right there. Pretty fucking skilled. And also a tremendous performer. It's very rare that you get all of those things in one human being. And he's got kind of the legend, the lore of uh, he died early. He died at 34 of cancer and basically toured up until his death, which is bonkers. I mean, personally, if I'm on my deathbed, I'm not sure... <laughs> I'm not sure that Chuckle Hut uh, in whatever city is the place I'd like to be spending my last few days. But uh, So he's got this kind of a, a wonderful mythology in the comic world as, as being like one of the greats. And he really was. He was so, excuse me, so smart. And again, I think too, uh, you know, he's, he's saying stuff that even like today, I think people would go, whoa, that's... It's pretty crazy, like how out, how out there, and and that was recorded in ninety two, nineteen ninety two, guys, uh, and it's shocking still by twenty eighteen standards, which is fucking pathetic and kind of scary, but uh, yeah, but I think Hicks was responding to the kind of Reagan or uh, George Bush, first Bush regimes, and um, you know, speaking his mind and stuff. So yeah. Bill Hicks, one of the best. Also, Carlin, hello. Also, fucking amaze. Much needed today. Much needed. Okay, so let's go on. I I uh, I feel like this is a weird episode. I don't. I just feel a little. I'm like I'm feeling like breaking the mold a little today. I'm um. Well, first I I I, I exercised and I I don't look good. When I exercise, I'm not one of these people who I'm not really proud of it. And I, and I sense in the culture today, like you have to not only exercise, but you have to prove that you've exercised. You have to display the exercise on Instagram because if you haven't Instagrammed your fitness, you haven't done it. And I can't think, and every time I see people doing it, like posting workout videos of themselves or like, I worked out guys, um, and I get it. You want the accolades, right? You want the back slaps. You want people to be stoked for you that you did it. Like you overcame the inertia that is, you know, should I work out? Oh God, I don't know. Which is why I have a trainer. I fucking book a woman who holds me accountable and I show up and I, and I have to, I just, I have to, cause I paid for it. And, but to the, but the thought, the, the very thought of, um, of her, I guess, holding the camera to me as I'm disgustingly, you know, doing these exercises. I, I look terrible when I do them. I'm not athletic to begin with. And the thought of me bragging about it on social media, it's like, it's just, it, it's the most revolting thought I could have. And it probably just because I don't, I don't look good. Like I don't, I don't look like Kate Hudson, 
when I do Pilates. You know, I don't, um, I don't look like any, any, like there's some people who really belong in the exercising video, but it's, it's, it's not for me. I wish maybe that, you know, maybe I should start posting just to show you guys how, how I do it despite being terrible at it. I'm fucking terrible at it. <laughs> Anyways, I, I keep at it. I keep wanting to do it. I, I need to do it. Otherwise I don't feel great. So I did it. And then, uh, and then I was thinking about this week about, uh, about this idea of closure and about the idea of forgiveness, which is a really big theme in the self-help therapy, whatever world of, uh, of trying to get your life right. There's always the theme of, uh, forgiving that person that did something terrible to you. And, uh, because ultimately you're just holding that anger inside of yourself. And isn't it better to not be angry and to transcend all that stuff and be the bigger person and, um, forgive and forgive and let go and let go. That's, uh, that's another big one. (laughs) And I mean, (sighs) It's really hard to do that. It's really, really hard, especially if you are in therapy and you are kind of examining different relationships you've had in the past or are, at, are having, whatever the heck. And it's, it is, and, and let's put it this way. There are some people who don't deserve your forgiveness. What about that? What about child molesters? What about people that have raped? What about... um you know, the real physical abusive pieces of shit that hurt children and, um, you know, not just your run of the mill, like shitty parent, but like the real, the real deal, like scum fucks. If, you know, if I were molested by somebody, I probably wouldn't, I I don't know if I would ever get to forgiveness. It might take an entire lifetime uh, to get to forgiveness or, or locked in a closet or whatever, whatever. And, uh, I don't know. I've just been thinking about it. And I think the nature of it, uh, we, our culture tends to want us to get to the light side of the force very quickly, right? Like you got to move on. There's always this talking, people always tell you, you got to move on. You got to have closure. You got to, and it's like it, it, the mind and the emotions kind of, kind of don't work that way. I think that, I think that tendency to want to forgive and move on and all that stuff kind of cuts out the middleman. It cuts out the the ugly shit that you have to do to get to forgiveness. The the excruciatingly depressing work of like really feeling your feelings and really going through something. You know what I'm saying? Like allowing yourself to really sit and marinate in the awfulness of the trauma of the thing of the person of the situation that you're trying to quote forgive or get over or whatever that is because as humans like who wants to feel shitty who wants to feel badly about themselves who wants to be depressed who wants to be nobody 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 and so I get these emails about like well I just broke up with someone or this horrible thing happened how do I just get to feeling normal again how do I just to feel good again? And it's like, well, I mean, fuck, if I, I mean, there's entire industries <laughs> built around that, the solution, the solution is in makeup, right? You ever go and I, I mean, I'm hooked on buying makeup lately because I look like hot shit warmed over. And uh, I swear every time I buy anything of makeup, I'm like, this is it. 
this is the uh this is the concealer that's going to change my life this is it i'm going to buy this thing and like everything's going to change it's going to turn everything around for me <laughs> and then you realize like oh that's not really the answer but yeah but that's what the that's what everyone wants to sell you on right the makeup the uh, diets the the clothes the uh I don't know, the cars, the whatever the fuck it is that's going to take away the need for you to actually feel like shit for a prolonged amount of time. And then after which you do come out okay, right? Because I will tell you this thing I learned uh, is that with forgiveness and closure and all this horse shit and confronting people... um, and and that and this and that. Like uh, I was talking to my shrink about it, and apparently, you need that other person to take responsibility for what they've done to you. So you'd have to be dealing with somebody who is really able to go. Oh, I did that to you. I'm. I didn't realize it hurt you so badly. I'm so sorry. I'm going to take responsibility. And uh, gosh, let's heal this. You know. And if you have one of those people in your life who's done something, and and you can kind of make amends. You have to be on the same, you have to share a reality in order to do that. And if that's the case, then great. There is such a thing as forgiveness and closure and moving on. And But that person has to acknowledge what they've done and how they've wronged you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the case of, of you know, hey, dead people or people that are on another planet mentally, uh, <laughs> we, all, we all deal with those. There is no such thing as closure, as true closure, as true forgiveness. And uh, yeah, and that's complicated and that sucks. And that's one of those things that uh, I think just over time, you kind of, uh, you accept more and more and more, but I don't think you completely get over and forgive. I think that that's not... I don't know. Is that entirely accurate? I, I just think you get used to something more and more and it, it takes, it's less of a thing in your consciousness. It's less of a bite. It's less of a, a blaming thing. There's less charge to that thought. And I don't know, maybe over time. Yeah, you do, but you forgive. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> anyways, I will say this. I will say this that uh that in my my mother's death and she and I had a very complicated relationship that I've I've grown much more fond of her and uh and and more empathetic towards her plight and her being mentally ill and all this stuff and I I I I, I forgive that. I guess is what you would say like you go like, "Well, I forgive. I forgive that situation. I forgive the scenario that she was in and and uh, and all that stuff. And ironically, I you know I do think she actually did do the best that she could because she did try to read um, self help books. Like she had an entire collection, ironically, of all these self help books. And um, and I think she tried to kind of improve on herself the best that she could. But yeah, alas, not really a lot of limitations there. A lot of limitations. But anyways, that's kind of my thought uh, this week about forgiveness and closure. And I think it kind of ties in nicely to some of these emails that have come in. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's um, hold on. Let me find the one that it ties into. Okay, I found it. This email comes from uh, a girl named Autumn. She says, uh, I was listening to that Steve Bro episode 162 and you were talking about your mom passing away and the struggles that came with it. You also mentioned not being in contact with her for eight years and it not being a reality for most people to patch things up with their parents who have been shit on their whole lives. This really got me thinking, I just got my mom back in my life for over a year now and things have been better than I imagined. She calls me, makes me dinner, listens to what's on my mind. We go to lunch and shop and it is an active and is an active participant in my life now. Even though I'm not used to having a mom around, the little girl inside is just beaming with excitement. With that being said, there's some backstory. I'm 29 years old. I grew up with a very self-absorbed, TBH, narcissistic, drug-addicted mother. What's TBH, narcissistic? Textbook? Textbook? I grew up pretty much taking care of her. I've lived off and on with my grandparents, who are both now passed on, mostly because my mom has been in trouble with the law multiple times. She went to prison for the first time when I was 15, and thank goodness my 26-year-old sister, who happened to be living with us, took care of me and my little brother, who was only seven at the time. Since then, she's been to prison three times. After the second time, my sister moved away, and my brother and I went up to live with our grandma. Shortly after that, our grandmother passed away. My uncle told us right before she passed, we we wouldn't be on the streets and we could live there but sold a house and told us we had eight days to find somewhere to live. I went to court, got custody of my brother, did the best I could trying to raise young boy only eight years younger than me. Yikes. Making things work, my mom got out and wanted my brother back. But I didn't think that was healthy, so I kept and um, let and let her visit. My brother resented me for it shortly after being home. Our mom went right back in. Ooh, fast forward to today. My mom is back in mine and my siblings' lives, and things have been going smoothly. I'm still skeptical every day that she will be ripped away from us again and sometimes get anxiety just thinking about her leaving us again. I keep reminding myself that my mom has been clean and sober for seven and a half years now, but only one and a half of those may have been by choice. The others may be because she was locked up. I actually do enjoy getting to know her, but maybe that could make it worse later. Am I making the right choice by giving her another chance just because she's clean or would I have been smart to protect myself for the what if? Thanks a bunch, Autumn. Oh my goodness, Autumn. What a story, huh? Holy mackerel. <sighs> so you're asking if it's right to give her another chance um, or just protect yourself for what if, for the inevitable She's been clean for seven and a half years. That's cool. Even though one and a half of those are by choice. Now, from what I understand, though, in prison, um, drugs are still pretty accessible. Um, I I do believe it's still a thing. Like, if you want to find it, you will get it. Uh, so 
I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not an expert on prison. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> uh, but yeah, why wouldn't you be tentative about this person who clearly has a history of back and forth of addiction, of of uh, neglectful parenting? And But here's the thing. You said uh, it's been a year and she's been pretty on great behavior. Um, again, this goes back to the idea of forgiveness of somebody being able to have a sense of what they've done wrong and, and a sense of taking responsibility, right? Has she taken responsibility? Has she, does she acknowledge the horribleness of your past with her? And fuck, I might even ask her, I'd sit down with her and be like, dude, bro, bro, like I want this bro. (laughs) But your track record is pretty crazy. And I'm not so sure I can jump all in. I can't be all in. And I would tell her like, Hey, here's, here's the facts of your past behavior. And can I trust you moving forward or see how she reacts? See if she acknowledges, see if she takes responsibility. Um, Because generally, if, like I said in the beginning of the show, if you if you can't have, if someone doesn't take responsibility, there's no changing the behaviors. There's no moving forward. It sounds like she's on the up and up. It sounds like it, um, but however, uh, it sounds like she's also got a lot of stuff going on with recidivism, recidivism, and uh, drug use. So yeah, you should be on guard, but you should also convey that. I would convey that to her, adult to adult. I like this. I like you. I like what we're doing, but I don't really trust you. (laughs) And if she's of sound mind and if she is as healed as she kind of seems to be, I think that she'd agree with you and be like, yeah, I kind of fucked up, kind of fucked up with you guys for 29 years. (laughs) Sorry about that whole leaving you to raise your own siblings and Sorry about that whole displacing you and making you live with your grandparents. Oh, and then your grandparents kicked you out last minute too. Sorry about ruining your entire childhood existence. Like if there's no acknowledgement of that, um, then I would say be on red alert. Red alert, red flags, flags, flags. There's flags are flapping so loud in your ears. You can't even hear what's happening around you. Um, Yeah. And I'd say plan for the next stint in prison, the next relapse. As far as I know, I mean, look, seven and a half years of sobriety is pretty amazing. And I I am not, I I know nothing about this kind of, you know, really, unfortunately, drug stuff is not, I've had some experience, uh, but not, I've not had this this particular fun in my family. Uh, We tend to just go alcoholism, narcissism, mental illness, not so much the hard drugs. So sorry, I wish I had more personal experience, but my gut tells me you're right. Why trust a bitch? She hasn't exactly had a great track record and a year of acting like a normal person. Cool. And also, hey, I look at what we think a normal person acts like or a maternal person, BT dubs, uh, because you've had such shitty mothering, I think uh, like uh, uh, those of us that have had shitty moms kind of like our bar for what's nice and, and motherly is really low, 
really, really, really tragically, tragically low. So what you might think of is like, hey, she's really doing this could just be as simple as like, wow, she showed up on time for dinner tonight. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't she a great mom? Uh, but yeah, but you say that she's listening to you and, and interested in your life and stuff. And that's pretty amazing. So I don't know if she had to come to Jesus in prison. Um, I hope she did. And it's not impossible. I mean, I've read stories, biographies of junkies, uh, people that have been horribly addicted to drugs and have turned their lives completely around through, you know, groups, AA or whatever therapy or whatever the fuck Jesus it's not impossible. It's not impossible. There's always the potential for people to be, to change if they're not completely kooky nutters, mentally ill and untreated or, or untreatable. There's a handful of disorders that are very difficult to treat and, and medicate and everything. But other than that, I mean, if someone's doing the work, why not? Not only that, Autumn, I want this to work for you. I want you to have a mommy, believe me. I fucking want this to be real too. Uh, But that being said, you have every right to protect yourself, your emotions, and your siblings' emotions. You got to call her out on the past, have a real, real, real open, honest dialogue about that past, and see what she fucking says. And if it's total denial... And if she says some horse shit like, I did the best I could. No, you didn't. No, you didn't, bitch. When you were in prison, was that the best you could do? Or when you were shooting shit into your arms, was that the best you could do? Don't fucking... If, if, if any parent says that to you when you confront them on their shit, that's like the laziest, bullshittiest, like forget it. You're banging your head against the wall. I did the best I could. Or when they blame you... Well, you were a bad kid. Da, 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 da. You were so difficult. Oh, forget it. Forget it. You're never going to have the relationship you want. By the way, I highly recommend this book I just read. Um, it's called Toxic Parents that discusses this exact phenomenon. Toxic Parents by Dr. Susan Forward, old school 80s book. Now, she advocates the confrontation method with people with the person that offended you. Um, I'm not so sure that's always called for. I, I wouldn't personally advocate that, especially if that person's on another goddamn planet. Um, it's going to be more harmful and hurtful, I think for you than for, than anything else. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's best just to kind of throw your arms in the air and accept what is than to constantly plan, plan your case against, you know what I'm saying? You feel me what I'm talking about? <sighs> Man, God damn it. All right. Since we're on this topic, I think this is a pretty great one too. It's kind of uh, adjacent. This one comes from M. She uh, prefers to remain anonymous. Longtime listener, big fan of both Dad's Bro and your mom's house. Thank you very much. Okay. She writes, I love your perspective on family members and the pressure to consistently take their shit. Plus, this is a newish situation I am in and very unfamiliar with. A close family member of mine suffers from recently diagnosed depression and anxiety. She's taking antidepressants, but often strays from her dose and as well drinks heavily and posts frequently and obnoxiously while intoxicated. Of course, I know this is her way of desiring attention 
<clears throat> something myself and my family have tried to give her, but when she posts, when the posts are inappropriate and quite embarrassing, this is hard for me to respond to. She quickly backlashes backlashes times I have tried to help by treating me similar to how she did when I was 10 years old, making me feel small and that my opinions are not worthy of her time. For some quick backstory uh, to explain my level of sympathy, we are sisters close in age and have never had the best relationship. To be honest, she was a fucking asshole to me through my adolescence and a lot of her defamatory words and actions stuck with me throughout that time, making me feel very alone and distant from her. She has often felt she was the black sheep of our family, but in a righteous, cocky way, insisting that since I have a stable job, spouse, and social life, that this is an easy route, in her words, that I have taken. To her, taking money from her parents and living with extended family rent-free and not showing up for her barista shifts is the more exciting and worthwhile route. At the risk of sounding like a douche, I feel her words do come from a place of jealousy, but these are choices we have both taken. We have had the exact same upbringing and opportunities in life. This kind of feuding is something I know is common with sisters, but we never really mended anything. And it's hard for me to just forgive and forget. Am I an asshole for not providing the right amount of empathy for her for what she's going through now? Deep down, I know her problems are bigger than our distance and squabbles in our past relationship. But a small part of me is clutching the feeling that I should be selfish in who I surround myself with. It is hard to push past this feeling when I see her actions and words deeply affecting my parents and family members. Sincerely, and ready to get my life, M. Okay. So, M has a, a sister that she doesn't... They don't say how old you are, right, M? Okay, I don't know what, how, where you are in your life. Um, and you've not really liked her and now she's diagnosed with depression and anxiety. She's on the meds. Good. Uh, but she doesn't take them and then drinks heavily and posts horrible shit on the internet. Okay. Does that, is that, did I get that straight? Sounds about right. Uh, fantastic. Wow. What a lucky scenario for you to have. What a special gift of a sibling. Um, (laughs) it's like, I get it, dude. Hey, been there. Get it. Totally, totally, totally. So you're asking me, do I have the right amount of empathy? Should I give a shit? Should I come to her rescue? Should I participate in the rescuing? Uh, Whatever it is, the family shit that you need to... Okay. The answer is no. You don't have to. You don't have to have empathy. Uh, in fact, you can be angry with her. You can be disappointed in her. You can not like her. You can choose not to have any interaction with her. You can choose to have limited interaction with her. You know, maybe the obligatory once a, once a year holiday torture event. Um, you don't have to feel or do a goddamn thing. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it it is that thing of like, hey, am I the a-hole here? Because I don't have the right amount of empathy for this person who's, you know, been diagnosed with stuff and is chemically imbalanced. It doesn't matter because I think it always feels, it feels crappy on your end, right? When she acts out and doesn't take her meds and starts drinking and does her whole thing and then you're the victim of her 
it sounds like lifelong dramas and blah, blah, blee, blow, blees. So you don't have to feel anything, firstly. And again, I think that is a cultural thing that we're supposed to, but you should have empathy. That's your sister. And you should, because she's, you know, got these mental problems and we should all rescue. Like, no, eh, no, (sighs) no, you don't have to. And in fact, it's your parents' responsibility and it's, you know, it's let, let them deal with it. If you have parents that are, that are good, uh, you know, it's, it's their job to wrangle, treat, corral, medicate, get help for their young. It is not your responsibility as her sister. Uh, I don't, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I think what's most important for you is to get your life, get your life, go see a shrink, go to therapy. I always advocate the therapy, fucking talk to somebody, uh, about, about all this and straighten up your end of it because your animosity towards her is more about you, right? We all know that, that, or maybe we don't all know that, you know, she's doing what she's doing and it doesn't have to affect you in the least, but it does affect you. You're, you're keyed up, you're fired up, you're triggered, you're wound up. You're feeling stuff about it. You're feeling animosity. You might be angry or depressed or whatever. And that's what I'm concerned with. I'm more worried about you, Em. And I'm worried about you, like, how you're going to react to what she's doing, right? Because that's all you can control is your reaction. So get your ass in the therapy. Talk to a shrink. Find a sliding scale therapist. I posted a statewide sliding scale therapy list on my website. That's zebropodcast.com. Look them up. Try it out. uh, And talk to them because it sounds like you've had a a lifelong shitty relationship with somebody that now, unfortunately, um, might get worse. Generally, uh, you know, the people with the the problems who don't, don't follow the rules of protocol of treating those problems you might be in for a lifelong fucking thing with her. So may as well get help now. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You feel me what I'm talking about? Okay. Okay. This one came in and I just felt so, I felt so, I felt so compelled to answer this person. Okay. This is from Ethan. Eitan. Uh, He says, hi, mommy. I'm a 21-year-old with dreams of being a stand-up comedian. I have loads of material written I want to try out, but I have some psychological barriers. My wife, whom I've known since high school and have been with for seven years now, is pregnant with our first child due May of this year. Congratulations. Neither of us have a college education and are working class people. She works for her parents' business, and I do labor for hourly pay. I personally am not afraid of the work it takes to become a working comic and juggling a newborn and day job at the same time. I know it takes years of effort and I'm willing to go without sleep or a luxurious lifestyle in order to pursue my dream. However, I am racked with horrific guilt at the thought of pursuing my dream when I have the responsibilities of raising a child and being in a marriage. I was raised by a single father because my mother was a drug addict who hasn't been in my life since I was 10 years old. And I can't help but feel like by following my dream of being a stand-up, I'd be leading my daughter and wife into a hard life with the odds of it paying off being very low. If I don't pursue this dream, I will have to find something comfortable and passionless to do for the like living like to do for a living like a trade. My question is, what do I 
What do I go for something? Wait, what do I go for? Something comfortable that pays so my family can have an easier life or do I pursue my lifelong dream of being a comedian? I've been struggling with this for a while because comedy is the only thing I have any real desire to do other than provide for my growing family. Thanks, James Ethan. Okay. Oh, first of all, what a, a beautifully written email. Let's say that that's good. You have a good gift of language. Okay. So you're 21. You've got a baby on the way. You've got a wife. You have a woman you've been with for a long time. But you have this desire to be um, a Sam comedian. Great. Great. Do you have to, do these things have to be mutually exclusive? No. Do you have to forgo all your dreams because you're having a family? No. So let's put things in perspective, Ethan. I don't know where you live. I don't know if it's near a comedy city, a comedy hub, if you will. But keep in mind, it takes about 10 to 15 years to even get good at stand-up. So you've got 10 or 15 years <laughs> before shit's going to start really whatever happening. Actually, I would say you've got the first six or seven years of just developing. And you don't need to go on the road to do that, okay? Um, and le- hey, you said you've got loads of material and you want to try out. It doesn't even sound like you fucking started and you're already talking yourself out of something you haven't even begun. Uh, so yeah, uh, uh, listen, it's a slow marathon stand up. It's, it, and, and so many people take breaks, come back, have children, come back. Ronnie Dangerfield didn't hit it until he was, what, 60 or something. He took breaks. He sold aluminum siding. And houses, there's a great story of him being on The Tonight Show and the next day going to sell aluminum siding. And he goes into this guy's house and the guy goes, hey, weren't you on The Tonight Show last night? And Ronnie's like, yep. (laughs) So, and Ronnie had a family. And he, you know, took care of his family and when when that time was up, was able to be a full-time comedian. So there are lots of people that have families. Go read a Bernie Mac's book his autobiography about raising children and being a stand-up comedian. So firstly, let's back that ass up. You don't even know if it's something you're good at and you're already talking yourself out of it or worried about, you know, is it worth the, should I just give up? You haven't even gotten up and tried it. You haven't even gone up and written your first three minutes and gone to some open mic and failed miserably. So Let's see if this is something that you even have the constitution for, the wiring for, the tenacity for. It's like, you know, you think you like something, but until you really get out there and do it and do it and do it, you're not going to know. So what is this going to cost in the beginning? Because everything has a cost. Like Rick Ross says, right? You got to pay the cost to be the boss. <laughs> there's always there's always a, a price to pay for following whatever course of action. So Yeah. So here's what's going to suck in the beginning. You're working your, your hourly long ass day job. You have a baby. So your, your, your mom, your, your wife's definitely going to want you to be home in the evenings, probably. Uh, but w- what you're going to do is maybe once or twice a week, you're going to go after your job and you're going to go do an open mic. Try to get up as early as possible. You can be home by nine. I don't fucking do a spot past... 9.30 at the comedy store. I'm home in bed by 10.30 when I go out. Um, there's no reason to be out until 2 in the morning if you're doing I'm sorry, especially if you're in a small town. Uh, if, you're tell, and if you're in a small town, there's no comedy rooms. Fucking start one. Start one. 
It's a great way to make cash. Start a room. Go to the local bar, the local whatever, club, whatever. Tell them, hey, give me your off night. Give me your Wednesday night. I'll do a comedy club, a comedy room in here. You invite all your friends. You invite all your people. Book it. Charge whatever you want to at the door. And now you've made money and you're living your dream of learning to do stand-up comedy. So there's ways to do things. It's not like there's one line, one straight line of becoming a stand-up comedian. I advise you read autobiographies of very successful comedians and see how they did it. Because a lot of us don't come from ideal uh, backgrounds and a lot of them don't have... Listen, Phyllis Diller had five fucking kids and started at 35 years old. Five children at home. Um, but necessity made her have to get a day job as a copy copywriter. And her husband was a bum who didn't work and she became the breadwinner. So listen, there's all kinds of ways to do things. There's not one linear way and you don't have to talk yourself out of your dream simply because you don't have a perfectly clean slate. Now, what I would recommend is support your wife. You've got a year coming up where your life is about to change dramatically and I don't know if you guys have help. I don't know if you have family around to help you with this newborn. I would ask you for the sake of your family and the sake of your wife and your child to spend the next, I don't know, six months, which is not a lot of time, just writing, getting your, getting your three minutes together, thinking. Um, I wrote my, I, my Netflix special literally while I was in the throes of postpartum depression, breastfeeding my son. I was sitting in the dark at two in the morning and I would just have these horrible thoughts and I would write them down. And then a month later when he was kind of up and running, I would do the road and, and I was like, oh, that this is a new uh, chunk of material. This is going to be a thing. So out of your darkness, out of these times, you might come up with the coolest stuff. But I would recommend taking six months to a year to be with that baby and be with your wife and really support her and your unit, your family unit, uh, because you won't get those months back. That's another thing too. It's a cute time. It's a good time. It's not, it's not, don't think of it as a um, deferral on your dreams. Think of it as an investment in that baby's life and in your life and in your, your wife and your marriage. So take some time to think, plan. If it's starting a comedy room in whatever small town you live in, if it's thinking about the open mic you're going to try, if it's putting together three minutes, your first three to five minutes of material, do that stuff. You can do that stuff when you're up at 3 a.m. with a baby. I did. Fucking sit there and write your ideas. Oh, that's funny. That's terrible. What a terrible thought that is. Oh, that that could be funny. You know, you, you kind of have to work with life because there's seldom ideal uh, scenarios. We're seldom... This, the road is never like easy and, and like, Hey, your schedule's cleared. Everything's perfect. You're in a good mood. You're totally healthy. You can do like, it's just, it just doesn't work out. That seldom works out that way. There's always some kind of roadblock and, and, and I say, use those things. Use the fact that you're a young parent and you also have to live your life to be a comedian, right? You have to do the things that other people do like having babies. So take this time to be with your family Grow up a little because you're going to grow up exponentially in the next year with this newborn and you're going to have so much more material. And then when your baby is a little stable, maybe like I said, a year, I would give it a year, honestly, until you, you and your wife are stabilized. Everybody's kind of found a groove. 
I would talk to my wife in the interim, maybe once things have calmed down and go, hey, look, I really want to explore this thing of being a comedian. I just want to explore it because that is what you're doing, Ethan. You don't know if you if you really are wired to do this yet. If you really, really want to put in the, who knows? You might get up, do it and go, you know what? I don't think I want to be a, a stand-up, but I'd like to try sketch comedy. Yeah, I think I want to do characters or maybe I'd like to write for television. Wouldn't that be kind of a cool idea? Or maybe I'd like to do, you know, I want to be an SNL. So I'm going to start working on my celebrity impressions. So there's so many lanes to comedy. And I mean, heck, when I started out, I started out the Groundlings doing improv. And I thought, well, I'm just going to be an SNL. That's what I want. And like, that's the furthest thing that I ended up doing. So you're just dipping your toes in the water. So let's not put so much pressure on the career at the moment. And of course, you should follow your dreams. Of course. And of course, you know, talk to your wife about it. Explain this stuff to her. I think, I think getting her on board is going to be a lot more beneficial to you guys in the long run. Um, and it take baby steps too. You know, you're probably not going to be a feature act in a year. <laughs> it takes a while. It takes a while. And I know nobody wants to hear that when they start doing stand-up. I certainly didn't like hearing that. I don't know how many times I heard it takes 10 years. It takes 10 years. And you know what? That's really accurate. Actually, 10 years and then 15 to really make it. So you've got some time. And just just enjoy it. Enjoy the process. Enjoy your your child, your wife. And then do this thing when you have you know the time. Tell her I won't go out more than X times a week. Because you do have obligations, which is fine. That's okay. You can have family obligations and still be a comedian. Make a promise to your wife. I'm only going to go out. I've, I've had these open mics planned, booked, whatever. You know, Monday nights, I'm going down to the Derby or whatever the fuck the name is. Friday nights, I'm going to be at the bowling alley. I'm going to ask to go up early. I can be home by 10. You know, reassure her. And don't go out and get drunk and and fuck around when you're out there doing the work. Do the fucking work because you're a family guy. Okay? You're not going to have the luxury of being a a typical open mic or douchebag comedian. So you're going to have to work a lot smarter, not harder. You're going to have to do things a little differently. You're not going to fuck around. You're not going to do drugs. You're not going to party. You're going to go out, do your work, and come home. So that you keep your family intact. And that way your your kid's going to have a dad. And your kid's not going to grow up the way you did. Right? Being abandoned and, and you know, feeling like shit. Um, so, yeah. There's lots of ways around this. Start reading books about, about the big ones, the ones you like, the comedians you've liked. I guarantee not all of them have had straight and narrow paths to their success. There's so many different ways to be successful at, at stand-up. That's kind of the the beauty of it is that it's, there's just no one way. There's no one door. There's no one, and especially with the internet. I mean, I've known comedians who put a bit on the internet and then boom, they're selling out theaters. So it's like, it's all changing and it's going to change. And there's no reason that you, you have to just, (laughs) this is a 1950s mentality. Like I just got to put my nose to the grindstone. I got to give up everything and be miserable. No, you don't. You're just going to take a slower path, Ethan. You're going to take a path that's more responsible. You're going to do it the right way. You're going to do it a little slower, right? And then and then you'll see. You'll see where it goes, where it takes you. But at least try it out first. Try it out. You don't even know. We don't even know yet what you're capable of. 
but uh, but you don't want to spend your life being miserable. And if your wife gives you pushback, I would tell her that this is something that's going to really make me happy and really make us happy in the long run, blah, blah. And that you're going to, you're going to promise her that she is your first obligation. The family is your first obligation. Always, 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 right? Reassure her that because that's, that's what she's going to freak out over. And she's not going to like being alone uh, on weeknights. That's for sure. Or weekends or whenever it is. So if she has friends and family, invite them over while you're gone. That's going to help her out a lot. She she may get lonely. Just uh, just letting you know. That is one of the pitfalls, which is why I say don't go out five nights a week. You don't have to be a fucking lunatic. You can dip your toe into this stuff. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Fuck, you can have an open mic in your garage, in your backyard. There are backyard shows here in L.A. Uh, <laughs> you can bring the show to you. Why not? All right. I hope that helps. Uh, listen, I got to go. I got to take a piss. This is fucking killing me right now. Um, anyways, email me. That's the bro podcast at gmail.com. Come see me do stand up Christina P online, uh, for tickets. And, um, yeah, it's been a good week, bros. Let's, let's do this again next week. Okay. Okay. Until next time. That's been D bro. Now what? I don't know. Philosophize with philosophize with It's Christina P, a.k.a. Miss Jeans. This ain't your mom's house. It's a different theme. Gotta be critically thinking. Like you caught up at a cocktail party. Our thoughts start to sink in. John Locke, or was it Socrates? Aristotle or Plato, maybe Hippocrates. Got us talking all properly, topically. Just a comedian discussing these philosophies. Serious questions, silly people. What's that? What's that? That's deep, bro. It is the ultimate metaphor for life, and you know what that is? What? That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro.